I absolutely think that the only ethical way of of doing research is is to continue to stay involved in a in a profound manner and to maintain uh, these friendships and relationships. You know, sometimes you hear about people doing this flying in research, doing like two weeks of of field research in total, and and I think that does lead to a more sort of extractive model of knowledge production, where you go into in an area and just extract knowledge to to go out. Aside from the ethical question, I I couldn't also see how that could be rewarding, you know, even on the, for the involved individual because people do remain. Yeah, alien sort of objects to be researched in, in, in that way. Judith is a researcher who has spent a decade plus interviewing soldiers and militias in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That's kind of a unique niche, so we talk initially through what her working process looks like. Then we get into the rather complex social ecosystem that arises in protracted conflicts, what men under hums actually do all day and how they interact with the local economy and local society. We also talk a lot about the ethics of this work, not just because many of these groups are implicated in serious human rights violations, though they are, but also because there's a long history of, of extractive one-way research that originates in the global north. So against that background, how do you stay engaged over this kind of time frame, a decade or more, forging relationships in the right way? How do you integrate that with a quote-unquote normal academic life that is lived for the most part outside of the DRC? As always, no easy answers on any of this, but this was a really fascinating conversation with someone who's produced a lot of really unique, really granular research. The place I usually start these is pretty simple, although it's been complexified by COVID a little bit. When you meet people socially who aren't specialists, how do you describe what you what you do for a living the kinds of work that you and that's relatively straightforward in the sense that I'm I'm currently an academic so I do research and and teaching yeah my research really focuses on what I label processes of everyday militarization so I'm interested in looking in zones of protracted violent conflict what armed actors actually do there on a day-to-day basis and how they interact with people of all walks of life in all spheres of life. And that includes members of the uh, armed forces as well as rebel groups, but also vigilantes, uh, armed park guards, actually a range of of armed actors. And I really approach this from a sort of micro level and, and a sort of grounded everyday approach. And in addition to that, I'm interested in seeing how armed actors interfere in conflicts around natural resources, uh, more specifically, in, in all sorts of ways. Where does that fit in a disciplinary sense? Where would a, someone position that in the academic world? Actually, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm someone coming from the 
in itself interdisciplinary field of conflict studies, mm -hmm. then I use ethnographic methods, drawing on theory, mostly from sociology, to work on topics that are big in political science, whereas I'm currently teaching international relations and publish a lot in geography journals. So where it leaves me in, in an, a disciplinary sense is a bit unclear. I think I, I straddle the interdisciplinary fields of, on the one hand, conflict studies, and on the other hand, political ecology uh, due to this focus on natural resources. And this is very much uh, embedded in, in specific places, obviously, um, which, which follows from what you just said. And the majority of your work that I'm familiar with is Eastern Congo. It might be a little broader. I'm not sure. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Congo, like full disclosure, I'm a Congo researcher. Yep. And um, yeah, my whole academic work has focused on Eastern DRC. How did that come about? I was, I was looking for hints in your bio and I was left a bit guessing how that came to be your central focus. In the academic year of 2005 and 6, I was doing a master's program in conflict studies and human rights at the University of Utrecht. Mm -hmm. And for my master's thesis, we were expected to, to go to do field research. And I was playing with the thought of going to the DRC but many people told me it's it's too dangerous. You shouldn't go there. And this was during an electoral period, uh, right? The first elections that were being held after the transition, following a peace agreement that that was signed in in two thousand and two and adopted in two thousand and three, but that that never brought peace as such. And so I was discouraged from going there. Therefore, wound up in in Uganda doing an internship first in, in Kampala at the Foundation for Human Rights Initiative. But when I was working there, I saw that the main institutional perpetrator of human rights violations, according to many statistics, was the Uganda People's Defense Forces. And a lot of those human rights violations took place in northern Uganda. And so I became fascinated with that because at that office in Kampala, I was just looking at the statistics and I thought, well, what's the story behind the statistics? And I gradually became convinced if we really want to understand why human rights violations occur, we need to understand how armed forces actually work. How do they function? And so with that thought, I actually wound up going to, uh, to Gulu, although I was also discouraged from doing that at the time. This was early 2006. Um, but the World Food Program was uh, so kind as to allow me to be transported in their vehicles to camps for IDPs while they were doing food distribution. I was able to, to interview people about indeed, UPDF human rights violations. That, that firmly set me on the fascination with armed actors. Like I ended up there actually from a human rights perspective. Now, much later, I, I started doing a PhD. And actually, I was expected to work on something else. Uh, they wanted me to work on stabilization and reconstruction missions in Afghanistan. Very topical at the time, yeah. For the Netherlands, it was because, of course, the Dutch army was deployed to Uruzgan at the time. And so many people were working on that. But then it became quickly clear that 
the political situation changed in a way that there was no longer political support for the Dutch deployment there uh, and that it was ending. Whereas many researchers were working on Afghanistan. So I, I think I seized upon that opportunity to propose to work on a different topic instead, looking at the Congolese army and its interactions with civilians at the micro level in, in Eastern DRC. And that allowed me to combine, on the one hand, uh, my fascination for the DRC, and on the other hand, my interest in armed forces. What also happened when I'd finished that research for my master's dissertation in, in northern Uganda, I actually arranged an internship in Kinshasa, thinking, well, if you want to discover how things work, and also if you want to gain any sort of experience, it's very useful to do internships with local NGOs. Mm-hmm. And I found that experience quite valuable that I had in Uganda. So I thought, why can I not replicate that in the DR Congo and, and indeed go there? So instead of returning to participate in the, in the graduation ceremony of my master's program, I, I just didn't return. And I, I, I went on to the, to the DRC in 2006, where uh, I stayed and, and participated in a domestic election observer mission. Mm-hmm. from an, uh, an NGO called Line Elite. The, the word you used was fascinated. What was it about those interactions that was so interesting? Fascination with the way that the armed forces worked, I would say, is unusual <laughs> for people who are working in the human rights world, obviously. And at that time, you were doing field research, which tend to position the army as the other or an object of, of scrutiny, certainly, but not something that you would empathize with too closely or dig too deeply into, no? It's kind of an unusual reaction for uh, human rights internship. So my whole uh, insight at the time was, indeed, if we approach this by condemning it from the outset, we're never going to understand the dynamics. We're never going to understand the everyday lives of soldiers and therefore, we're never going to understand how armed forces actually work and if human rights violations are committed, why they are committed. So indeed, I, I, I discovered that these sort of stereotypical categorizations as soldiers as a priori perpetrators were just, in fact, not very helpful mm-hmm. for understanding what was going on. I think maybe it was... Because I I never worked directly in the human rights sector, so I wasn't too deeply indoctrinated, I think, by that view or way of thinking, having a quite open mindset instead. Even though ultimately my motivation was to do understand why human rights violations occur. What does that look like? I mean, what is what is the process to uh, dig beneath those superficial surface narratives? Um, in in this sort of environment, it it really requires going open minded there and, and trying to listen to people, including soldiers. What are their stories? What are their experiences? I think listening is absolutely key to begin even this process of of understanding and ultimately analysis. So my approach was really to actually go to isolated rural areas, not only because 
while insecurity does tend to be big there, it is actually also pretty substantial in, in urban areas these days. <laughs> but this is also where a good part of the, the armed forces are employed as well as where they have a very significant imprint on, on, uh, on everyday life. Their presence is quite substantial, especially in zones where uh, military operations are, are conducted. And I found that in very remote rural areas, conducting research was actually relatively easy in the sense that the, your mere physical appearance in zones where, for instance, you can only go by foot often surprises people and makes them quite welcoming and willing to, to share their experiences and their stories, including our groups as well as soldiers and, and civilians from all, all walks of life. So I found that process of, of doing research in very remote rural areas uh, very rewarding uh, and gained a whole lot of insights from there. Do you, do you feel like there's some sort of responsibility there uh, in being the, not the only one, but one of a very small number of people who makes that trip to listen to these stories do you do you feel like you have a responsibility to tell them in a certain way do they expect you to represent them in a certain way it feels like there's an audience that's very rarely listened to so how do you navigate the ethics of presenting what they say and what they tell you well to start with i i always felt an obligation to to do share these insights which is maybe also one of the reasons that i have had a fairly substantial output because I, I do feel very strongly that once you collect these data, you have to do something with it. Uh, also, my way of working has been to include many direct quotes in order to include people's views themselves. But of course, as a scholar, what I represent and, and how I do it remains heavily imprinted by my own insights and biases. Then I, I think that's a well-established fact. Sure. Um, and um, I've I've tried to really. You always struggle with the the, the pitfalls of of tropes of victimization, mm -hmm. right? And that that also applies to the armed actor side. It is quite challenging to, on the one hand, portray armed actors as human, but on the other side, not be apologetic about the often horrific abuses that they do commit. Mm -hmm. um, there's no doubt about that. And, and I think that that has really been one of the challenges of, of my type of research. It's, it's listening to people, but it's not portraying them as victims who are powerless and do not have any agency. On the other hand, you do feel that people living in, in often profound poverty in, in rural areas, uh, that the, the scope for their agency does tend to be fairly limited, uh, even though they display very creative ways in order to make a living uh, and in order to cope with insecurity. The, the phrase you used that I wrote down was understanding what they're actually doing. And, and for a yeah, you know, maybe for a non a non specialist, people might make assumptions or think it's obvious what the military is is doing, but obviously it's a bit more complex than that. What what are they actually doing? I mean, what sort of day to day routines and 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 ways of life are we talking about here? Yeah, 
to a surprising extent, in fact, what the army does, at least the Congolese army in certain rural areas, resembles a whole lot what civilians are trying to do, which is really making ends meet. Soldiers' salaries are very low, and for other reasons as well, like patronage network and expectations of, of, of generating revenue, soldiers actually end up spending a good deal of time being engaged in revenue generation activities. I found that those activities which we often tend to see as as marginal compared to their so-called security work, are very crucial to the way in which they interact with civilians. Uh I also found that because the Congolese army is not very well resourced, especially rank-and-file soldiers in isolated zones also spend a lot of time just with basic tasks you know, trying to obtain fuel to cook, cooking, and, and often their wives are in military camps as well to do these type of tasks, which is also an interesting phenomenon that many uh, wives of soldiers follow them around, including to operational zones, although this is officially forbidden. And so what you actually observe are forms of, of family life in, in very adverse circumstances. And these are often, from an ethnographic point of view, I guess, there was a deliberate effort after the transition in DRC to deploy the army in a way that people were outside their areas of, of ethnic origin. And obviously that became a very complicated story. <laughs> that in, in a number of cases, presumably, you still have people who may not even speak local language, let alone be of the same culture deployed into relatively remote rural areas. No, it's quite interesting, I would think, from an ethnographic point of view, how they establish identity and navigate that relationship with with local communities. Yeah, it, it is. What we see is that the soldiers, many who do not originate from the East, but from the West, have been deployed by now for extended periods of time in the East. I've spoken to many guys who said, for instance, we arrived here after the transition in 2004 and we've been here ever since. And often they they do tend to to take or they, they find new wives. These are not often officially official marriages but they do start new families uh, and therefore do become quite integrated into that that local life you're absolutely right this is now um 15 16 years in the past it's almost like a one-off internal migration in a way no it's not like they're given the means to to travel back home on 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 leave or get rotated in any consistent way no they they aren't what what's interesting then is that because they become quite closely integrated in the fabric of social life, they also become involved in all sorts of more personalized quarrels and disputes in in which they start intervening. And at the same time, they also become involved in, like I say, these revenue generation activities, not only directly, but also indirectly. So there's a whole mechanism through which people in Congo, uh, economic operators, solicit protection from, uh, in particular, FRDC officers, which often means that you pay, for instance, less taxes, or you can conduct technically illegal revenue generation activities without being busted by uh, other authorities. And so there's many 
different ways in which the FRDC actually plays a key role in in forms of social regulation and economic life that go way beyond any formal security rule, what we tend to look at when analyzing armed forces uh, as purely security actors. Is that ever, I was going to say, is that ever a good thing? That's probably not the right word. But in some cases, does that function in a reasonably stable way? I mean, the temptation would be to assume that it's purely extractive, but it it sounds like that could be a reasonably stable status quo in, in, in certain situations, which is workable for, you know, if not for everybody, is, is workable for some part of the community. Yeah, I mean, and it, this is very similar with armed groups and, and uh, their forms of control. Uh, we, we see differences between, on the one hand, zones where there is relatively stable I would say power balance between either uh, armed groups and and the army uh, or or and and between civilian sort of authorities, and there are zones that are subject to contested control where there's fighting. Those zones tend to be very unstable, mm-hmm. where a particular armed group or uh, army unit manages to maintain a form of control over a longer period of time. We often see that sort of more peaceful settlements and arrangements arise that are still coercive, but that may involve less overt violence. I've also observed that there's a great deal of difference between individual armed groups, as well as between individual army units, often depending really on the the individual norms and beliefs of commanders. So uh, for me, there's a, a big difference between forms of revenue generation that involve overt violence that, cre- and that creates a lot of insecurity. And I'm talking here, for instance, about kidnappings, armed robbery, ambushes, uh-huh. and forms of revenue generation that are still exploitative and extractive, but that that bring less insecurity to people because they often take place according to more in more routinized forms. An example here is roadblock extortion. In many areas where I conducted research, these roadblocks are certainly resented by people. They press heavily on their everyday income, but because they know exactly where the roadblock is and how much they have to pay, that if that sort of script is respected, and if not suddenly the amount is, is raised, these transactions do not cause the same amount of, of anxiety as, for instance, armed actors invading your house at night and at gunpoint forcing you to round up all your belongings uh, uh, for them. So I think we should differentiate between the, the types of extortion that, that take place and uh, what levels of violence are involved. And that indeed depends on the norms of, of individual armed group and army commanders. One of the things that always struck me, and I think a lot of people who work in this sort of environment ask themselves this question, but sticking with armed forces for the moment, how do they make sense of their role? Do they see themselves as providing a service? Are they just getting by and subsisting? What's the story they tell themselves? I found very strong 
professional discourses among armed service personnel that indeed they are professional security providers. Uh Now, what is actually the case is that despite its flaws, the Congolese armed forces are in many areas, in fact, seen to provide forms of of, uh, security, while at the same time also being seen as uh, extractive right, uh, as asking these fees at, at roadblocks, etc., and also engaging occasionally in, in human rights abuses, regardless, they are still seen as, as providing uh, some, some limited forms of security in, in many areas. And so I've indeed traveled roads where people were happy that the army was present, as previously, without their presence, there would be many more ambushes. So the role of the armed forces, uh, how they define and present themselves, does remain inscribed in these discourses of public security providers. And that corresponds in part to what they actually uh, do. They do also fight against armed groups, although the results of that are often limited, but they do go out there in, in operations. Yeah, what you see is that um, soldiers are exposed to these professional discourses uh, during their training, but also um, commanders often organize what they call causerie morale in the mornings. Uh, there's parades and they uh, commanders speak to their soldiers uh, and therefore these discourses are constantly repeated. Now, there are pronounced gaps between discourses and practices, of course, and that's also something that I found with armed groups. So interviewing armed actors themselves really gives you only one side of the picture. You also have to see uh, what people do in addition to what they actually say. Yeah, yeah. I I know that at one level there's a considerable appetite on the policy side for this. At another level... Maybe this kind of research is not taken that seriously or used that much because it does tend to be driven by, you know, stereotypes and, and fairly kind of binary definitions of, of victims and perpetrators and so on. What has, how has your relationship been with policy audiences in Eastern DRC? Let me put it, let me put it that way. What's the overall tenor of your experience with with people who are making policy around around security around developments around forced displacement? First of all, I found this to be a a fairly diverse group. So I've met many policymakers who uh, had actually a great deal of intellectual curiosity and were really reading widely on on the areas to to which they were deployed and and were actually asking me often very pertinent questions and also felt had sometimes a genuine interest in, in, in my work. So I think we we often get this stereotypical story of there's room for like three bullet points on, uh, and they don't have any time, etc. Well, of course, there's they are under time pressure, actually, as we are as academics, um, as everybody appears to be. But that, that that often doesn't, I would say, withhold them from from trying to get to develop a more profound understanding. Nevertheless, that understanding does remain limited, as I often observe, through the specific terms and words and phrases, the discourse that is used in these policy reports. And 
A fairly typical example is, is the whole discourse of security sector reform. So naturally, because I, I used to work on the armed forces, people were always thinking that I, I was somehow interested in, in security sector reform policies. Mm. Although I was making actually more a sociological study of the armed forces. In the end, I think I did, I was able to assess what sorts of policies could work well or less well based, based on my research. But I found that that the assumptions there were always that indeed the army was primarily a security provider, whereas say, for my own research, looking at what they do on a day-to-day basis, I think we should take the, the, the military as an economic actor seriously. And, and therefore, I, I feel that the understanding of policymakers is often hampered by, uh, by limited categories used in, in, in policy slang. So, yeah, my interactions have been varied, I would say. I've also had, of, of course, had to deal with keen interest in my work on the side of certain military intelligence services. Sure. Yeah, because my detailed knowledge of, of armed groups can be in high demand. And that brings along other interesting moral dilemmas, of course. Who do you share knowledge with and who do you not share knowledge with, etc.? How do you navigate that? I mean, you're just one researcher, right? You don't have many uh, resources to resist that kind of pressure, I would, I would think. Yeah, I mean, you can make choices as well as uh, where you share more analytical, generic observations versus more details, as well as what the ultimate purpose is of, of particular agencies within a certain re- region and whether you agree with their overall policies or not. You, you tend to develop a moral compass for that, I, I think, in the course of years. Has that, is, is that ever gone wrong? It sounds like it must be quite tricky to, to navigate, no? Um, I, I wouldn't say it has gone wrong. If if you carefully reflect on what you do beforehand, mm-hmm. um, it's good. Exactly, uh, which is what you what you should really do. That that tends to 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 work out fine. So I would say, like, I haven't had any very problematic experiences in that regard. What is also challenging, of course, is that does tend to be intense scrutiny of what you write by armed groups governments of certain countries, including neighboring countries in the region, etc. And that's something that you always have to be aware of. Everything you write will be read by the people that you, you have interacted with. And that, that is another challenge there. For instance, I talked earlier about human rights abuses. That is a very real aspect of many our groups and forces in the region, or something that um, not everybody wants you to talk about. Indeed, and they may not understand the difference, the exact difference between your role and someone whose job it is precisely to talk about those, identify and talk about those abuses. Yeah, exactly. It, it is also really about the, the type of publications that you do. Mm. I tend to write, in addition to academic articles, often longer, complex monographs of like dozens of pages and therefore, those details get buried in a broad array of information. They tend not to be the highlights or the focus is, is not often on those aspects. They are often 
part of a wider range of, of aspects that I research in relation to, to armed groups and forces. You've been working on the same region for a, a, a fairly long time, let's say, not a, maybe not a very long time, but a fairly long time, on a relatively well-defined niche. I'm just curious, what would you identify as the as the highlights of that? How do you think about success and failure and, and doing that kind of research? Were there points at which you feel like things really moved forward or that you know there was a breakthrough of some kind or is it more kind of incremental and and, and granular than that yeah it's it's um i felt i had a very steep learning curve during the long months of research that i conducted for my phd dissertation i would say i had many I gained many insights or I laid a good foundation on which I, I uh, later continued to build uh, also in terms of context, but also in terms of how you actually conduct research in, in such areas. It's, it's difficult to speak of, of successes. I mean, in academic terms, successes are, are defined in quite narrow terms. You know, I don't know, amounts of publications, citations, uh, grants, yeah. prizes, etc., Right, but how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, no, I'm 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 I've often seen as as successes when I've managed to to conduct a piece of research that I think is 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 fairly solid. It's not easy to reconstruct uh, what has happened in certain areas because of contradictory narratives. Of course, these are zones of conflict, and you often encounter opposed testimonies. And so where I feel that I've, I've managed to craft a sort of consolidated analysis of, of causes and effects, uh, that, that is a major achievement, um, I would say. It's very difficult sometimes to, to, to craft such an analysis because of all the, the contradictory stories and, and rumors, etc. So getting the story, what you think is more or less right, is what I would consider a success and that includes of presenting the perspectives of the people that I that I spoke with. It's often a matter of of complicating existing narratives. Mm. Does um does that fit easily into the academic world? Falling a little bit between disciplines, as you do. Does does establishing that narrative get kind of the the the, the recognition or the yeah, well, you need to overlay your narrative with theory in, in academia. Um, I would say, uh, in my own reading, I, I'm not discontent with, with my ability to, to craft a narrative and then to fit that to some theoretical framework or show where the theoretical framework is off. I mean, it's, it's a kind of extra assemblage that you do later down the production line which is once you have your consolidated empirical narrative to sort of like fit it with theoretical tools mm. and it's something that obviously not not everyone is interested in on the other hand i also feel that uh, there's a great deal of work the the constant work of maintaining uh relationships and friendships with with people in congo 
that is absolutely unaccounted for in in, in the academic world. For instance, I, I prefer to, when I uh, have transcriptions of, of interviews that need to be done, of course, I prefer to work with, with people in, uh, in the Congo, right? If I indeed have the, the luxury of not transcribing all my interviews, but having parts of them done. Now, the amount of effort that it takes to get uh, a Congolese transcriber uh, set up in the university system as a vendor <laughs> is absolutely insane. The amount yes. of due diligence checks that need to be filled out you know, whereas actually in the UK, uh, especially in recent years, there's a fair amount of high-profile corruption cases, um, <laughs> you know, that that have uh, grabbed the headlines here. But yeah, so I, I do feel that having this deep sort of immersion in, in one particular place and um, uh, maintaining your contacts and your friendships there is is not always easy to navigate in in the current academic world. Well, it's one thing when you're doing a a doctorate or a postdoc, but um, you know, now you're a faculty position in a in a university in the UK and have to teach and and do all that stuff. It it would be hard to square the two, I imagine, and and even mentally to sort of square the two. What is really interesting, I would say, is WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. When I started my research in 2010, mobile internet and, and the social media were not very widespread in the Congo yet. So indeed, when I when I would be in Europe, people would call occasionally, but there wasn't this sort of constant flow of, of messages uh, that there is today. And I think that that's that has created a different kind kind of connection. It is much easier to to re, to be in touch and to to stay sort of immersed in what happens in in the Congo due to that. I would say there is not a a, a disconnection in that sense. That it also means being confronted on a day-to-day basis with sometimes quite uh, abhorrent incidents of violence that that the people I'm in touch with report on. And I think that that is, that is fair. They cannot decouple from the war at any moment either. It's always there. It's, it's almost constantly that we read about horrible incidents of violence and, and massacres. And it's an everyday reality that people in Eastern Congo have to deal with. And uh, I don't think we can have the luxury to say, okay, today I'm not interested. And so, in a sense, I, I felt that that it it has. I mean, leveling is maybe a big word given the very pronounced power inequalities and uh, that exist and that that always remain there. But it it has had it has changed relationships to a certain extent. It can be hard for a lot of people, I think, to maintain that that connection in that way over ten, fifteen years of involvement in those dynamics which often are very obviously distressing when you get down to things at a human level yeah do, do you do you, will you keep I mean, obviously the relationships continue but do you keep doing that forever you know for the foreseeable future is there an exit strategy from that absolutely not um i mean we 
I've I have a fair amount of of of, of friends in the Congo. I, I wouldn't see any easy way. Uh, I, yeah. I, I cannot just say I, I'm ending these these friendships, these relationships. It's it, it's impossible. I, I I absolutely think that the only ethical way of of doing research is is to continue to stay involved in a in a profound manner and to maintain uh, these friendships and relationships. You know. Sometimes you hear about people doing this flying in research for like a couple of days in in certain areas or doing like two weeks of of of, of field research in total. And, and I think that does lead to a more sort of extractive model of, of knowledge production where you go into in an area and just extract knowledge to, to go out. I couldn't also see how how that could be rewarding. You know, even on the, for the involved individual, because people do remain, yeah, alien sort of objects to be researched in 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 that way. Whereas, like with some people, so some people related to our groups, have maintained contact for years. It's it's also aside from the ethical question, I I, I wouldn't be really be sure how people would navigate that on a personal level. How would they justify their presence in in a context alien to them for such a short period of time? But unfortunately, there is a lot of pressures in the academic world uh, to have these types of of quick exercises and, and produce rapid outputs. I think it's related to the the structure of academia, which, especially in the in the UK, does t- tend to be quite heavily neoliberalized. And yeah, I mean, it it would definitely be a, a healthy thing to um, to have less. There's also so much that is published because of these pressures for publication to just have have less published and and take more time for research, take more time to listen to people, take more time to think. But yeah, that that really runs counter to some of the ingrained logics in in, in academia today. Mm. I mean, from one point of view, it makes for better research, but also your your more ethical point is that it's about respect of people as, I'm paraphrasing, I think, but it's, it's about respect of people as individuals rather than merely subjects of research that they, you know, have ongoing lives. Yeah. No, I think what you say about indeed research subjects, um, it, it's somewhere a very bizarre category to put people in, informants, research participants, etc. Whereas people are ultimately just people, right? And I think that's also among the more interesting aspects of my research, uh, I would say, is that whether it, I talk with armed group commanders or army officers or farmers or or fishermen you do ultimately discover that everyone is just like a human being and somewhere it's just very fascinating that you know the longer i've conducted research just the more very fundamentally similar everyone appears somehow Um, and i think that that's really one of the i would say maybe a highlight if i can call it a search of my research do you get to integrate that with day-to-day university responsibilities here? I saw you were teaching comparative IR or something along those lines. Do you manage to join those two worlds a little bit to enrich the more traditional ac- academic disciplines with this, you know, this empirical 
content and narrative or are those separate things? Uh, I mean, it really depends on the, the type of module that you teach. I teach another module, for instance, on peacekeeping, state building and international intervention which is much better for integrating some of those insights into uh, into your teaching practice. And aside from direct insights, I think it's certain sensibilities that you bring along. It's like, do you teach, for instance, international in- intervention purely from the perspective of the interveners, mm. right? Are you asking students also to pay attention to uh, the perspective of, of those intervened upon, so to speak? So I think there's a great deal of, of sensibilities that you bring into your, your teaching, even aside from like directly drawing on your own experiences. Would you, is there advice you would give yourself 2009-10, let's say, obviously there are very practical things, but in, in terms of how you engaged with uh, the people involved, in terms of how you formulated your, your questions and so on, is there's sort of big pieces of learning or, or major changes in your perspective over that time? Did you have assumptions that you discarded or um, other major changes in how you thought about things? Yeah, I think you constantly adjust your assumptions. I think that's that's an ongoing process. So it's, it's a bit difficult to reconstruct mm-hmm what strongly held assumptions I held at one point and then like how I discarded them afterwards. Well, I think one thing that I really learned that I, which I alluded to earlier is this discrepancy between discourses and practices at times, mm-hmm. um, especially if you talk to, to armed groups, uh, they're always, they always respect human rights. Uh, they're always well organized. There's always a central command structure, uh, etc. There's always a, a discourse, often a more politically charged discourse that that they will present. Similarly for the armed forces, but that can mask how things really work on the ground. And it took some time for me to discover that. I learned a great deal about armed groups and forces, not from the armed groups and forces themselves, but by listening to people living in the areas uh, where they are deployed. So I think that that was an, an important insight, but also the other way around. There are things that the people we label civilians, which is, of course, also a, a contentious label, mm. do not talk about, for instance, how they harness armed actors to further their own interests. Uh, I found cases where, for instance, you have a debt, and in order to collect that debt, you ask someone you know, uh, an army officer, to put a little bit of pressure on the debtor. Or where you have a conflict around land, um, you ask you know, your uncle, who happens to be an officer in a Maimai group, to just put a little bit of pressure on uh, your opponent. Those are things that the people I spoke with never talked about, but that I learned by talking actually to to armed groups and and forces. Um, So interestingly, I think I I learned that you really have to talk to a a broad range of different groups in order to assess what what happens. Last thing that I, I ask everybody is, it's not a very 
populated sort of field of, of research around a huge number of names in it. I'm just curious, as, as you formulated your view on this, was there a particular author or you know, book or, or work that influenced how you went about the task that provided a bit of a aha moment for you? Well, there is, I think, a great amount of, curiously, especially female researchers that have emerged in, in uh, recent years doing often very good, mm. good field research in, in areas of conflict, particular thinking here of uh, Marielle de Beau, Sure. who wrote about Chad, uh, Louisa Lombard, uh, who wrote about Central African Republic, but also s- certain researchers working on South Sudan. That sort of um, inspired me. Why, conscious of time, but <laughs> I've noticed the same thing. Why do, you, why do you think that is, that it is kind of a female-dominated uh, niche at the moment? Any, any theories there? No, I, I would say that... Maybe for women, in certain aspects, it, it, it can be easier to access, to interview armed actors. But um, yeah, that, that may be an unsubstantiated conjecture, but, but that is what I found. And it can also be that there's always this, this sort of trope of the, the heroic field researcher, right? Braving, mm-hmm. uncivilized. I mean, these, these are colonial tropes of the, the sort of explorer adventure, which are very heavily inscribed in registers of masculinity. Mm-hmm. It may just be the case that women do, do not necessarily feel, you know, the historical burden of, of, of those tropes and therefore have a bit of a different way of working and of looking at things when in areas of, of violent conflict, with, which may lead to different emphasis in their research. That's another possibility. It's not, it's never um, something you've interrogated yourself, whether your gender has influenced it at all. Definitely, um, you know, had many uh, military officers who just found it very amusing to have <laughs> conversations, also to be seen conversing with white women, Yeah. right? Which somehow, uh, I think, Male researchers can also be more easily suspected of being uh, spies for like the CIA or other military intelligence services. So it is possible that it does influence the, the level of access that you can get, at least in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I have to think from the, the researcher side, there's also something about the the way you described it, with there being a distinction between the security function and everything else that people do in their day-to-day lives, I do wonder if women are just a bit more open to um, seeing that other dimension other than the formal function somehow. I don't know. It's interesting. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. 
rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.